Would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3? By way of introduction, let me tell you about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the highest federal court in our country. Every year, there's approximately 8,000 cases that are filed with the Supreme Court, but they rule on just about 2% of those cases. And I've always been fascinated by the Supreme Court, the duty that they have to interpret the laws and to weigh them against the Constitution. You know, whenever one of the nine judges of the Supreme Court, if they retire or, or they die, whoever is president at the time will nominate someone to take their place. And so every four years, we hear lots of discussion about whom any prospective candidate would appoint to the Supreme Court. Most presidents during their term will get to pick two or three Supreme Court justices. And whenever I hear people discussing the Supreme Court nominations, I think to myself, I know who would be the perfect candidate for the Supreme Court, the best, the smartest, the wisest judge in the whole country. Who do you think it is? Judge Judy. <laughs> Why does nobody ever think of her for the Supreme Court? But can you imagine someone with her wit, her mental prowess, her powerful tongue, her aggressive demeanor on the Supreme Court? My friends, that's exactly what this country needs. Now, I don't know Judge Judy's experience with constitutional law, but I know she was a New York State family court judge for a long time before she became a professional arbiter with her own show. And the most fascinating aspect of her show, how many people watch it? Okay. The most fascinating aspect of the show is the laser-like precision with which she questions the litigants in her courtroom and cuts through all the lies and is able to discern the truth. Despite her aggressive personality, her ability to get to the truth of a matter gets an A-plus in my book. So today, I want to look at the most famous litigation in human history being adjudicated by someone the Bible says was wiser than even my beloved Judge Judy. So you're in 1 Kings chapter 3, and I want to read for you verses 16 through 23. We already read the first 15 verses, and so I want to read for you the remainder of the chapter which talks about uh, Solomon and this famous judgment that he that he gave. First Kings chapter 3 starting in verse number 16. The word of God says to us, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, oh my lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. And there was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. 
So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So, I have a very simple outline for you this morning. It's in your bulletin, if you're a person who likes to take notes. On the back of your bulletin, point number one, knowledge is better than ignorance. Point number two, wisdom is better than knowledge. Point number three, justice is better than wisdom. Point number four, salvation is better than justice. Okay, knowledge is better than ignorance. Wisdom is better than knowledge. Justice is better than wisdom. And salvation is better than justice. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your people gathered here this morning to hear the, the proclamation of your word. And Father, um, despite the nervousness or the weakness of the messenger, uh, may your word go forth in the power of your spirit and have its reign among your people. I pray not only that we would see uh, the justice of Solomon, but that we would see the beauty of Christ as this text points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, uh, Lord, may we draw close to him. May we know him more. May we appreciate him more. May those of us who know his salvation have a, a renewed love and appreciation for what Christ has done for us. And I pray if there's any in this room who do not know Christ as Savior, but still regard him as judge, I pray that this would be the day that they would come to know Christ. So work in those hearts as well, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Point number one, knowledge is better than ignorance. You know, there's a saying that goes, ignorance is bliss, meaning that if you're unaware of the problems that surround your life, the situations, the circumstances, if you're indifferent to all the knowledge that's out there to be known, that's out there for you to acquire, then you have a form of happiness that comes from not having to deal with or be responsible for those things. And someone one day extended it to say, ignorance is bliss, but only for the ignorant. To lack knowledge, no matter how easy or carefree that may seem to you, is a disadvantage as a believer. Many passages of scripture remind the believer to pursue knowledge, both knowledge of God from his word and knowledge of the world that God has created. Second Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Proverbs 1 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning of wisdom is this, Proverbs 4, Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Scripture says, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, save for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to argue that knowledge is essential for the Christian. Knowledge is fundamental. It's a fundamental building block. Of wisdom. Although the biblical concepts of knowledge and wisdom are both packed with great meaning, I would put it like this for the sake of simplicity. Knowledge is facts perceived. Wisdom is facts practiced. Knowledge is truth apprehended. Wisdom is truth applied. 
I would illustrate it like this. When I did math in school, and I was terrible at math in school, I hated math, whether algebra or geometry, uh, we'd have to memorize a lot of formulas. We had to gain knowledge, apprehend a lot of facts about mathematical principles. There's Pythagorean's theorem, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, or formulas for the area of a shape, or algebraic equations. And so I was made to know those things and study them and compute them on paper many, many times. That's knowledge. But in math class, we often say to ourselves, is this stuff really important? How am I going to use this in the real world? Well, you know, when I did start using mathematics in real life, in computer programming, in graphic design, in designing bathroom renovations like for our church, when you have a tight bathroom space, like the women's bathroom upstairs, and you want to put in a large 60-inch vanity, you have to use Pythagorean's theorem to answer the question, once I get it into, into the door widthwise, am I going to be able to turn it around lengthwise? And so you do some math on a piece of paper and determine, yes, it looks like you won't make it, but you, in fact, will make it. That's wisdom. Information perceived is knowledge. Information applied is wisdom. And so I want us to look at the facts of this case that scripture records for us. I want us to have all the specific knowledge about the situation of these two women who come before King Solomon. Verse 16, scripture says that two prostitutes came before the king. Their identity, their course of life is important in this story. Some commentators have tried to soften that or minimize it, saying they're not really prostitutes, they're just like innkeepers, they're, they're tavern keepers. One commentator said that if they were prostitutes, they would not have come before the king. I don't think that's accurate. You know, we're a church that believes in the inspiration of scripture. We believe that the Holy Spirit has purposefully put into the story everything that God wanted us to know about the story. That's not a stray or unnecessary detail. It's there because God wanted you to know it. These two women are prostitutes. That's, that's going to be important in this story. Otherwise, God would not have put that detail in the text. Secondly, we know that they've come before the king. Now, nobody can just appear before the king like that. It's not like two people have a dispute and they say, let's go to the king to settle it. There's millions of Israelites in this kingdom. The text says that Solomon said that your people are without number. There's millions of Israelites from north to south in this kingdom spread in uh, 12 geographic regions. Each of them has local tribal leadership. They have elders of families, tribal leaders, and city officials who would have been the first to address such a matter. So when scripture says they came before the king, you've got to understand that this is a progressing dispute that could not be settled at the local level. And so the matter has escalated to the king's attention. A king, ancient or modern, is going to be very selective about who he gives his attention to. So you can't just walk in before the king and gain an audience with him for a trivial matter. Verse 17. The first woman. She claims to be the victim in this case, and she is the accuser. Here's what she alleges that her friend and her roommate, and likely her, her business partner, has done. They were both pregnant at the same time. She says, I had a baby, a son, and three days later, this woman also had a son. And so it's just those four people in the house, the two women and the two newborn infants. Three times the woman emphasizes that they were there by themselves. 
It says, verse 18, we were alone. There was no one else with us. Uh, only we two were in the house. So he's, she's emphasizing there's no, there's no one else there. That's important because it means that there's no witnesses. There's nobody who can say, I saw both babies when they were born, and I could offer credible testimony that this baby has some kind of birthmark or facial feature or other distinction whereby we know it belongs to one or the other. It's just these two women, and the child in dispute is obviously too young to testify. And I would guess that their profession as prostitutes is how they became pregnant. And this is the reason why there's no family, no friends, or neighbors that are involved in their lives. Nobody can vouch for them because there's a level of shame in their lives. Um, so you're not inviting people into your, your life. You, you don't know your neighbors. You're not proud of, of, of your life. You don't invite people to, to come see your new baby. So she alleges that woman two was sleeping with her baby she rolled over on him in the midst of sleep, and she killed her child. And then she swapped her baby with the first woman's baby. That's what you call co-sleeping. Doctors advise against it. There's moms that swear by it. Right or wrong as it may be, it results in the death of this infant. Woman one, she wakes up in, in the morning to nurse her baby. The baby is not responsive. And you can imagine the, the shock and the horror that she goes through. As, as a young mother, she would feel for the breath of the baby. There's no breath. His body is cold. His lungs are not moving up and down. His heart is not, is not beating. Can you imagine the pain and the shock and the horror um, experienced by this woman at this moment? But verse 21 says that she looked at him closely in the morning or the morning light and realized it was not her son. Now, I know some of you who are mothers are saying, wait, wait a second, I would know the size and the shape and the smell of my baby. And yes, and so did this woman, except that it took her a little longer due to it being yet, yet dark. And she initially being in shock and grief, thinking that her baby had died in the middle of the night. So let's turn our attention to, to the defendant in this story, woman number two. In verse 22, she responds, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. Then the first one says, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. So those are the facts of the case. That's the knowledge that you need to have here. From everything that Solomon needed to know about the case, what has been recorded here is everything that the Holy Spirit wanted you to know about this matter. Point number two, wisdom is better than knowledge. How many people are familiar with the name Ken Jennings? Anyone know who Ken Jennings is? Jeopardy, yes, you're correct. Jeopardy. Ken Jennings is a computer scientist who became famous because he was a Jeopardy champion for 74 episodes in a row. He won Jeopardy. Think about all the facts and the trivia and the people and the places and the names and dates and events you have to memorize to accomplish something like that. And as commendable as that is, the acquisition of random facts and knowledge is not only what you should strive for, because wisdom is better than knowledge. Knowledge is important. It's better if you have the opportunity to be Ken Jennings than not to be Ken Jennings. It's better to be a Jeopardy champion than to drop out of high school. 
But God has not placed you in this world or saved you to only acquire knowledge, but to get a heart of wisdom. The knowledge that is afforded to you, what are you going to do with it? The facts and the truths that you have discerned from life, from culture, from your studies, from your experiences, from others, how do you apply those to your life? How will your knowledge give you a skillfulness or a wisdom in the way that you live? Let me speak for a moment to students. Whether you're a student from Word of Life or a student from uh, our church, I want you to know that the opportunity to be a student is a time that God has given you to gain knowledge, not only to gain knowledge, but to develop wisdom, to synthesize your knowledge into skill, to broaden your mind, to understand the world around you. I would encourage you to make the most of that opportunity if you have that opportunity. Let's continue in the story and observe the wisdom of King Solomon. To reiterate, we have no witnesses, no corroborating evidence, no expert testimony. We have one woman's word against another woman's word. How would you decide this case? I would probably ask a lot of questions. I would want to see the baby and take a good look at him and see if you could find a resemblance between that baby and one of the mothers. Verse 23, the king says, this one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, but your, no, but your son is dead and my son is a living one. What the king observes is this back and forth argument. This is not going to be an easy dispute to settle. And the matter is urgent because it's not something you can just wait and see. Wait for, wait for the kid to grow up, see if he resembles one one or, or another. Uh, wait to see which one the kid likes better when he's one or two years old. No, the, the matter needs to be settled in the moment because that infant's needs are not going to stop. Who's going to feed him? Who's going to put him to sleep? Who's going to clothe him? Which woman is going to function as the mother when they walk out of the king's chambers that day? And for both of these two women, just think about their lives at this moment. There's no going back from this day. Once they walk out of that room, that friendship is over. Their business partnership is over. Their living arrangement as roommates is over. And if these allegations are true, it means that a great crime has been committed in Solomon's kingdom. A baby has been stolen, so that's, that's kidnapping. A woman has attempted to distort his identity, so that's fraud. She's lied before the king, so that's perjury, if these accusations are true, that is. Somewhere in all of this, as Solomon is perceiving this matter, the truth is somewhere in there. These women know the truth. One of them is telling the truth, and one of them is lying. Either the, the accuser is telling the truth, and she's a victim, or she's, she's lying and trying to get a free baby after hers has died. Either the defendant is telling the truth that her son is a live one, or she's lying, and she's actually a kidnapper. And where is Judge Judy when we need her? The king says in verse 24, bring me a sword. And if you're in the judgment chamber, you've got to be wondering, why is the king asking for a sword? What's he going to do with that sword? Maybe he's going to make a threat. Maybe he's going to say, you tell me the truth or else. Maybe it's just for his, his decorum. So a sword is brought before the king. Scripture tells us extensively about the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon was granted by the Lord unmatched wisdom so that he would be a king of um, justice. It says in 1 Kings 4.32 that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. 22 chapters of the book of Proverbs are attributed to King Solomon. 
Reading the Proverbs shows you that Solomon has an unmatched understanding of the world around him or what human nature is like or what wisdom and righteousness are going to look like or what foolishness and sin are going to look like. He grasped what life is like and what life ought to be like. And so here's how that works in this situation. What Solomon knows about human nature and about the world, he brings to bear on this specific situation as he administers justice. That's wisdom, looking at a situation, understanding it, and applying all your knowledge to figure it out. To figure out this situation, Solomon has to know something about motherhood, that there is a relentless protectiveness in motherhood, in, in mothers a sacrificial selflessness. He has to know something about shame and desperation. These women are prostitutes. That, that's important because they're ill-regarded by society. Even the book of Proverbs, written, written by Solomon, begins with warnings about the deception of the harlot. Think about the depraved life that someone in that situation has to live, the danger of abuse they are constantly in, outcast from their, uh, from their tribe, from their family. Notice they have nobody in, in their lives. Think of the depraved experiences that they've had, the spiritual sickness that they experience day by day, the searing and the hardness of conscience. You have to know something also about grief, that people don't make rational choices in their grief. Sometimes in grief, in your loss, you, you want to ruin the life of someone else who has nothing to do with your grief. There's a vicious envy that seeks an equality of misery to make others suffer the way that you are suffering. And Solomon brings this wisdom to bear upon the situation. He applies and understands, he applies what he understands about life specifically to this situation. That's wisdom. Wisdom is better than knowledge. Point number three, justice is better than wisdom. You know, the reason... God gave Solomon wisdom, scripture says, is not so that he could sit back and muse and ponder and contemplate like a wise old sage. There's a Snapple commercial from around 10 years ago that reminds me of that. Tell me if you remember this. It's Snapple White Tea. Does anyone remember that commercial? Okay, I'll tell you what this commercial is. Uh, in this commercial, there's a man saying how much he loves Snapple White Tea, but then he admits he doesn't know what white tea is. And so he flies halfway around the world to China or Japan, and he meets this wise old sage, a tea master. This wise old sage explains to him what white tea is. He shares his eternal wisdom about white tea. And he says, white tea is a baby tea leaf, and when it still has a light and natural flavor, we pluck it. And the man says, that's it, as though he's in disbelief that it could be that simple. And the tea master says, that's it. And the commercial ends, Snapple white tea made from, made from the best stuff on earth. So, but wisdom by itself is not God's desire for Solomon. It's not God's desire for you or I to be like the wise old Snapple sage. Solomon was granted wisdom so that he could do justice. You and I are given wisdom so that we can understand the world around us, so we can um, understand how God is working in the world around us, so we can shine the light of Christ in the world around us in the most excellent and effective ways. That's why God gives people wisdom, not to be a sage, but to be his ambassador. Solomon's God-given wisdom enables him to administer justice. And here's his judgment, verse 25. He says, divide the child in two. 
Give half to the one and half to the other. Solomon would have been surrounded by his men of war at all times. It says in Song of Solomon that 60 men who were experts of war kept watch in the night while he slept. That's like his secret service protection. Um, So one of them would have brought forward a sword, and he gives the order to divide the child in two. At that moment, I would think that the room stops. Everything is silent so that you can hear a pin drop. The soldier who has brought forth the sword has been commanded to execute a newborn, a less than a week old infant. He would freeze in shock, trying to steady his nerves to obey his king. As a soldier, you could understand the need to kill the enemies of the king, those that threaten the life of the king, but a newborn child? Yet the king holds supreme authority over the people of Israel, and you dare not defy him. This is what Israel signed up for when they asked for a king, and that is what the soldier signed up for when he joined the ranks of Solomon's army. Have you ever heard of the game Russian Roulette? It's not a fun game. It's a sick and life-threatening game of chance. It entails that you take a gun, a revolver, load one bullet into the chamber, spin the cylinder, and you put it to someone's head and pull the trigger. And if the bullet is in the correct, correct position, the person has a one in six chance of being shot to death. That's essentially the risk that Solomon is taking here. He knows the outcome that he wants to achieve, but in the moment, this is a great risk because he has to take a risk to get the result that he wants. He has to let it be known that he's willing to compromise the life of this child and see if that satisfies or scandalizes either of the two women. Taking that kind of risk is going to reveal the truth about the matter in a dispute where there is no evidence, no witnesses, and it's her word against her. The first woman whose alive son had been stolen from her cries out, give the child to her, don't put him to death. She says she will resign her parental rights if it will spare the life of her son. She knows that her son has been stolen. She knows that um, he's the alive child. And her motherly instinct would rather him be alive and given a chance in the world than for him to die. But the other woman, the one who has lost her son, who has kidnapped the living child, and who has lied before the king, the one in bitterness and grief and envy, she says, go ahead and divide him. He shall be neither mine or yours. She's lost everything at that that point. She had a baby. She experienced a newfound hope. And then she lost the baby, and nothing else matters anymore. It's not her child. What does she care if he dies? And she can't bear the thought that her companion, her former friend, her former roommate, gets the chance to be a mother while she is miserable and grief-stricken. It's preferable for her that the child would die. And that's exactly what Solomon wanted to achieve. Verse 27, he orders that the living child be given to the first woman, not just because she gave a good answer, not just because she showed compassion, but because her response indicated to Solomon that she was truly the mother of that child. Verse 28, and all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Justice is one of those things that would make or break you as a society and as a leader. Justice is an expression of the righteousness of a king and his his kingdom. 
I want to live in a society where justice is administered, not where justice is perverted. Scripture says in Romans 13 that one of the chief obligations of a government is to do justice. You know, there's a lot of things that our government tries to do. There's a lot that we as a society expect our government to do. Our government seeks to operate federal parks, to operate a postal service, operate a railroad, subsidize health care, regulate the kinds of fuel that you can use to heat your church building, regulate how your food is grown, control how much sugar is imported into the country, keep a database of all the telecommunications in our country, regulate how much an employer must pay their employees, expand the money supply at a rate of 2% inflation, and many other pointless things that are not necessarily the biblical role of government. But the one thing that a government must get right and that a society must get right is justice. Solomon's justice is indiscriminate. Two women, two prostitutes have come before him. They're not women of status or of wealth. They have no husbands to strengthen their case. Their profession is repugnant in that day and age and even in hours. And he does not dismiss them. He doesn't say, get away from me. He hears their case. He takes a big risk and he grants them their greatest need then and there, justice. Have you ever heard a news story when let's say there's violence by one gang against another gang, one territorial drug dealer against another, and one of the bad guys is killed, and sometimes people will say, well, who cares? It's just one more thug off the street. Well, that's wrong. That's terrible. That's not justice. We ought to be a society not of indiscriminate killing, but of justice. Christians ought to be people who love justice, who celebrate justice, and uphold justice. That's why Judge Judy is so appealing, because we have a desire to see justice done. We want wrongs to be made right. We want to see those who suffer unjustly be granted what they have been deprived of. And Judge Judy's courtroom is a microcosm of the world that I want to live in, where lies do not prevail, where bad guys do not win, where those who suffer can go to plead for wrongs to be made right. That's what... That's why Israel can celebrate King Solomon's judgment here. So these women leave, and their lives are never going to be the same. Point number four. Justice is better than wisdom, but salvation is better than justice. Notice something, though, the way the story ends. The woman got justice. That's it. The woman who kidnapped the baby was forced to return it. She, was, she had to leave the king, king's chambers in shame. Her reputation at this point is ruined. Her friendship is ruined. She leaves in hopelessness, in bitterness, and in envy. But the wrong was made right. The child was restored to his rightful mother. Evil was squelched, and loss was restored. I want you to realize something that this text will demonstrate to us. Remember from the opening of the passage, the way scripture identifies these women. They're prostitutes. They're prostitutes when they walk in. They're prostitutes when they leave. Some commentators, as I said, have a hard time with that because they theorize how can these prostitutes be bold enough to come before the king? Well, that's what the text says. They were prostitutes and they came before the king. That's what the text means. Here's why I think they're able to come before the king with impunity no matter the things they have done in their lives. In every government, there's going to be a division of power. 
There's some things that are handled by local leaders, and there's some things that are handled by the monarch. What these women do is not something Solomon chooses to deal with. He's dealing with the more important matter of, of the kidnapping of this child. What they do, prostitution, is not under investigation in this case. Thirdly, Solomon's, uh, is, he, he's indiscriminate in granting justice. It doesn't matter that she's a poor single mother who earns a living from prostitution. She still has a need for justice that Solomon grants for her. Finally, the king himself is not the poster child for marital and sexual faithfulness. For we know from verse 1 of this chapter that he had formed a marital alliance with Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. We know that Solomon will amass a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. So on what righteousness would he condemn these women that, that come before him? You know, that's the best that even the wisest king who ever lived can grant you. The best of human governments can grant you is earthly justice while letting you remain in your sins. But there's something better than justice. Salvation is better than justice. In Matthew 12, Jesus talks about Solomon. And he tells the Pharisees, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. My friends, I want to tell you that something greater than Solomon is here. I want to recount two situations where Jesus ran into women of ill repute. First, John chapter 4, Jesus and the woman, the, the Samaritan woman. Jesus asked the Samaritan woman, a woman of ill repute, for a drink. She says, I am a Samaritan, you are a Jew. How do you ask me for a drink? Jesus says to her, if you knew who I was, you'd be the one asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water. She says, sir, give me this water. He says, go call your husband. She says, I'm not married. He says, you're correct, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. This woman had a shame in her life that she would come to the well the hottest part of the day because she didn't want to interact with friends and neighbors because of her life that people would gossip about and be critical of. They end up having a theological argument about where to worship. She says, when the Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. And Jesus says to her, I that speak to you am he. She goes to her village and she proclaims, come see a man who told me all things whatsoever I have done. Could this be the Christ. And after that, many of the Samaritans believed on him, saying to the woman, we believe not because of your testimony, but because we have heard his word ourselves. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is dining at the house of a Pharisee named Simon, and in comes a woman who is a sinner, a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. The woman sneaks up on Jesus and begins to wet his feet with her tears. She dries them with her hair anointing the feet of Jesus with a perfume. The Pharisees are indignant and they're disgusted, thinking to themselves, does he realize what manner of woman is touching him? And Jesus says to the Pharisee, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, 
I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Then in the most shocking moment, the Lord of the universe, the judge of all the earth, he turns to this woman of ill repute and says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees, watching, said to themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Who is this that forgives sins? He's someone greater than Solomon. My friends, the greatest news, the greatest message is not that there's justice, but that there is forgiveness, that there is salvation. Because there comes a day when God will judge all the world, but he has sent his son to be the savior of all men. Christ can forgive all offenders because he has lived in our place and died in our place for our sins. In this story, a prostitute gains an audience with the king so that she might have justice. The greater king, the judge of all the earth, welcomes sinners to himself and forgives and accepts sinners. Wrote William Cowper in his hymn, There is a Fountain. He said, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Something greater than Solomon has come, the forgiver of sins, wrote the hymn writer Augustus Toplady, the spotless savior lived for me and died upon the mount. The obedience of his life and death is placed to my account. Tis finished, now aloud he cries, no more the law requires. Amazing sacrifice, the Lord of life expires. He was buried, and then he rose again three days later. That's the good news of the gospel, my friends. There is mercy with the Lord because of Jesus Christ. Because there comes a day when all men shall meet him as their judge. We're all sinners. It matters not if you're a wretched type of sinner, like the antagonist of our story, or the polite and decent type of sinners. God has appointed a day when he will judge sinners, and it will be infinitely more dreadful than appearing before King Solomon or before Judge Judy as she discerns the secrets of one's heart. And the only thing that will matter is if we're in Christ. If you've never come to Christ, I implore you with the kindness of of Christ's forgiveness and with the dread of his judgment that you repent and trust Christ as your savior for something greater than Solomon has come. And for those of us who know Christ, let's rejoice as we close out our service that someone greater than Solomon came, not a king of justice, but a king of mercy who came and he gave himself for us so that we meet him as our savior so that we don't meet him as our judge. Let's rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as we close. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is one greater than Solomon. Thank you that he came. He stood in our behalf, in our place, and he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. I pray, Lord, that those of us who uh, know Christ this morning, that as we contemplate the justice of King Solomon, that our minds would see um, the contrast of Christ, how Christ did not just come for justice, but he first came for forgiveness. And I pray that our hearts would love that and appreciate that and exult in that and rejoice in that. I pray, Lord, again, if there's anyone in this room this morning who does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that 
uh, your spirit would work in them to regenerate them, to bring faith and repentance in their lives so that they might know Christ. And I ask all this in his name. Amen.